end of chapter 16. We will read uh, from Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, through chapter 17, verse 13. Uh, We're beginning to look at a section of laws within the book of Deuteronomy regarding uh, leaders uh, in Israel once the people were settled in the land of Canaan. So we'll look at laws about judges, kings, priests, and prophets. And today we're looking at uh, the laws pertaining to the office of judge. Uh, So Deuteronomy 16, picking it up in verse 18. Let's, uh, Let's hear the living and active word of God. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land That the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman, who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, Then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true, and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. You shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. 
according to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands up to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall uh, hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Well, who's in charge and how should authority be exercised? Where should authority be concentrated? Come back to those questions at the end, so hang on to them for now. But it's hard to imagine anyone during the time period of the Old Testament who bore a greater weight of leadership than Moses. In fact, the burden and the weight of leadership turned out to be too much for him. You remember at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, he said to the people, I am not able to bear you by myself. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and all your strife? So it's no accident that as Deuteronomy is a series of sermons Moses preached to prepare the people of Israel to enter into the land without him, that Deuteronomy has a lot to say about leadership. As Moses nears the end of his his life and, and leadership will pass on to the next generation. And as the people prepare to enter into this entirely new situation where they're no longer a nomadic people, they're no longer an enslaved people, they are a people with an inheritance in a land that the Lord is giving to them. It's no wonder that in that transitional period, God gave a system of shared leadership with judges and kings and priests and prophets who were all called to lead the people under the ultimate authority of God himself. And thus the book of Deuteronomy is in many ways, from one perspective, a book about leadership. You could even say a book about leadership development as Moses prepares to see the people go into the promised land without him. He will, he will not enter in with them. And Rather than concentrate authority in a single office, I think this is so fascinating, what we see here is effectively the separation of powers within the law. It's it's really interesting how authority was centrally located in Moses and then to a lesser degree with Joshua and then once the people are settled within the land, it's, it's clearly divided up among Judges and kings and priests and prophets. And it would remain that way until the Lord raised up a leader among his people who was uniquely qualified and able to bear the burden and the full weight of leadership on his own back. And of course he would be able to do that because this was none other than the Lord himself come in our flesh. And as the judge of his people, he executes righteous judgment by doing what was absolutely unthinkable. 
He bears the full weight of divine judgment for us and thus deals with the case that is far too difficult for any of us. In light of this, I want us to consider the passage before us this morning in uh, three parts. We consider the work of judges and this system of justice. So first, we'll look at the appointment of judges. Secondly, three examples of injustice. And then thirdly, the need for a higher court. Let's think, first of all, about the appointment of judges in chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. Nothing, nothing is more basic, more fundamental to a functioning society, to a healthy society, than what we find described here, right? Any functioning society has to have some form of a basic system of justice and some means of administering justice, you know, without, without judges and officers to investigate wrongdoing, to settle disputes, and to maintain justice, a community will quickly descend into a state of chaos. And we see examples of that very thing happening in our own day, don't we? But still, it's, it's very easy, so it's very easy to take for granted the stability that we currently enjoy in our society because many of the principles that we will see in this passage have been worked into the fabric of our society even while many of them are being challenged today. But this basic need for just officers and judges to render right judgment, it could not be more basic. Every community need some kind of authority structure that will enforce principles of justice. And that's why Moses commands the people to appoint judges and officers. And notice you have here the, we could say, the consent of the governed. The people are involved in choosing and appointing their leadership. That's another important principle. And notice the call as well to appoint judges and officers locally. That's what Moses means in verse 18. He says, in all your towns. There's there's no replacement for local leadership. There's no replacing moms and dads and their leadership within the home. There's no replacement for appointed elders and deacons in the context of the local church. And there's no replacement for local authorities within a civil community. And the responsibility of these local judges and officers is stated very clearly here. It is to render righteous judgment. It's a call to what Moses describes as justice and only justice. Actually, in Hebrew, it's a simple repetition. Justice, justice. And it's worth noticing that there's not much said here. I think it's important to realize not only what is said, but just as important to realize what's not said here. There's not a whole lot of detail. Even though this passage raises all kinds of questions about the competence of said judges. You know, how old do they need to be? What kind of experience do they need to have? Are there educational requirements and and so on? The law does not address any of these practical questions about competence 
Because even more important than competence is the matter of personal character. Much like requirements for church elders in passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, the focus here is not on practical competence as much as it is on personal character. Look at verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. Literally, that in Hebrew it says, you shall see no face. Right? You're not a respecter of persons when it comes to rendering judgment. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Now, a question that we, we need to ask this morning as we try to think about justice, you know, to do justice to justice, we need to not only know what justice is, but we also need to know what's involved in the perversion of justice. And Deuteronomy here gives us some help, right, in explaining what the perversion of justice involves. Justice shows no partiality, doesn't play favorites, doesn't accept bribes, right? So, so then how can that kind of perversion of justice be avoided? That's another important question we need to ask. And you're, you're welcome to turn to Deuteronomy 24 with me for a minute. Deuteronomy 24 verses 17 and 18. Because here Moses expands on what it means to pervert justice. But he's also going to tell us how we can avoid the perversion of justice. And so in Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18, he says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. Now, those are all examples of the perversion of justice. And now here is how that perversion is avoided. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, according to Deuteronomy 24, 18, forgetting God and what God has done is at the heart of the perversion of justice. I mean, after all, it's, it's pretty hard to mistreat neglect and forget poor and vulnerable people when you know, when you know that you were a poor and vulnerable person that God saved. Right? This identity shaping experience of God's redeeming grace is what's needed to be a good judge who does not pervert justice, which we need to understand is at the end of the day irreducibly theological. Justice is a matter that is irreducibly theological. You can't get away from the fact that justice is always irreducibly about God. In other words, justice is first of all a vertical concern before it becomes a horizontal one. We're going to see that very clearly in this passage. And that's why, friends, at the end of the day, secular theories of justice always come up short. Right? They might get some things right, and you know, I'm very thankful for that, but they short-circuit because they don't begin with God. You, you cannot avoid the perversion of justice 
if you're unwilling to talk about God and what God has done in the history of this world. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, which I think is perhaps one of the single most foundational passages in all of the Bible to understanding what justice is, it illustrates the unavoidable and irreducibly theological character of justice. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. Have have a look at those verses and notice how it helps us because again, before, before we can do justice and only justice, we better know what justice actually is. So Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. There you have what we could call procedural justice, right? He's not partial. He takes no bribes. The very thing that judges are called to do within Israel. And then we have what we could call restorative justice in verse 18. Still talking about the Lord. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And here's the ethical consequence. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, you notice what Moses does in those verses. He he piles up these descriptions of the, the trans, about the transcendent glory and the amazing grace of of God. And the perversion of justice begins with a failure to remember, to reckon with God's transcendent glory and his amazing grace. It begins with a failure to remember who God is and what God has done in the gospel. This is the first thing that judges must understand if they're to avoid the perversion of justice. They must not forget God's transcendent glory or his amazing grace. Because when we forget about God's glory and we forget about his grace, we inevitably slip into some form of favoritism towards other things that begin to take the place of God. Right? Somebody's got to be in the place of authority. Somebody's got to be calling the shot. Somebody's got to be defining what justice is. And when we forget God, we begin to show favoritism toward whatever we put in his place, whether it be money or people or some other form of an ideology. And this brings us then to the three examples of injustice in our passage. Right after the the law for appointing judges, you have three examples of injustice Running from chapter 6, verse 21, through chapter 17, verse 7. And all of them, you'll notice, have to do with idolatry, with forbidden forms of worship. A lot of people look at this passage and say, what are these verses doing here? Why is it that right after instruction for the appointment of judges, do we have three examples of forbidden forms of worship? What's the connection? What's the connection between righteous judgment and idolatry? 
Well, it may not be immediately obvious to us, but in fact, these three examples of false worship are actually examples of the greatest injustice of all. These are examples of the deepest injustice. And it's, I think it's hard for us to understand that because, frankly, we're so man-centered. We're so prone to thinking about justice in terms of horizontal relationships. There's a lot of talk about Social justice today, make no mistake about it, the Bible is deeply, deeply concerned about that. But justice is, first of all, theological. And all injustice is, first of all, a matter of idolatry, a matter of putting something before God, a matter of putting something in God's place. And we need to understand this, brothers and sisters, that all injustice, all social injustice stems from this, from forgetting God and not doing what he says. If we understand that his rules are just, then we, we know that in the keeping of them, social justice is maintained. But if we forget God and we make up our own rules and come up with our own definitions of justice, well, then we end up being guilty of injustice on two accounts. And justice, first of all, in not giving God his due. And secondly, of injustice toward our neighbor, what people call social injustice. So all injustice is, first of all, a vertical problem because it is always first an offense against God before it is a social problem leading to societal and relational breakdown. That's the most important thing for us to see in these three examples of injustice. I, I know we probably have a bunch of questions swirling in our minds about this passage, but this is the most, this is the main thing. So let's make the main thing the main thing. Doing justice requires remembering God, and all injustice is a matter or a consequence of idolatry. And I think that's why these three examples of injustice have to do with false worship, because maintaining justice begins with God, and any society of people given over to idolatry will inevitably be marked by social injustice. Think about, think about the Canaanites for just a moment as one example, right? The Canaanites and their fertility cult. You know, one of the common practices that went along with this fertility cult was the sacrifice of children, Right? To please the gods. Now, we might balk at that, and we rightly balk at that, but, but are, we really, are we really any different as a society when, when we are willing to sacrifice helpless children on the altar of personal choice and personal freedom? You see, idolatry and injustice always go together. Now, in verses 2 through 7 of chapter 17, Moses, he goes on to provide a bunch of procedural principles, uh, such as the need for diligent investigation, the assumption of innocence until a person who's accused is proven guilty, the necessity of multiple witnesses, which we'll look at in more detail when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And, and then there's the need for a full investigation and clear proof before the rendering of judgment. And we see that 
in this passage that public, under, under the law of Moses, under the old covenant, um, that public open idolatry among God's people was a capital offense. Now, that raises questions. We're not going to address all of them right now. But stop and, and don't, don't miss. Okay, if the law was given as a tutor, which it was, what was this law teaching God's people? What, what does justice demand for someone who serves another God alongside of the one true and living God? What does justice and only justice mean when someone exchanges the glory of God for created things? This passage says that justice, righteous judgment, means that this person is worthy of death, is worthy of judgment. Now, as far as I know, you will not find a group of people from Trinity running off into the woods after church to set up an Asherah pole <laughs> and bow down to it, as far as I know. Right? Um, but think about it this way. Are, are, have, have we not transgressed the covenant in exactly this way? Not, not in the setting up of physical idols, but have, have we not said in our hearts, I will give this portion of my allegiance to God while I go on serving this other idol of my own making? Have we not said within our own hearts, I'm going I'm to follow, follow Jesus, I'll serve Jesus and this person or this thing. I, and I will, I know Jesus said you can't serve two masters, but I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to serve two or three or four. See, the reality is we've all done this. We've, we've all served idols even as God's covenant people, we have bowed down to our own golden calves. And the law says, the law says that we deserve the death penalty. And frankly, this is an open and shut case, isn't it? The verdict of justice is crystal clear. And so we have a case before us that certainly is too difficult for us to deal with. That leads us to the third thing I want us to consider for a few moments, the need for a higher court. You look at this again with me in chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. Again, although judges were appointed in all the towns, hard cases occasionally arose that were too difficult for local leadership to handle. Sometimes you just don't know what to do. If you've ever been involved in conflict resolution, then you know full well how murky and messy it can get. Sometimes it seems like there are competing principles needing to be applied, and it requires the wisdom of Solomon so that it doesn't just blow up on you. And within Israel, when there were cases like this, there was a place to go. There was a higher court of appeal. Now, this principle of graded courts, you may have already thought of this, is reflected here in, in the United States system of justice to a certain extent, which not only includes local and, and state authorities, but a Supreme Court, right, at, at the highest level. 
It's also reflected in our book of church order, uh, in, which we uh, ascribe to, we subscribe to as a Presbyterian church uh, here in the PCA. Um, and in fact, uh, I'm sure there's very few of us who are aware of this because not many of you read the BCO for fun at night, but there's an entire chapter on references, cases of reference is the title of the chapter when a local court like our local court or session of elders here at Trinity may ask for help in difficult cases appealing to the regional presbytery or even up to the general assembly. Now it's, this is different than an appeal where you know if a, in the case of an appeal if a local court makes a decision, a bad decision, and uh, there's disagreement about it. Members of the church have the right to appeal to the next court, to the pre presbytery, to uh, have them oversee the case. Right? You can do that in the PCA, but referencing is when a local court requests help because they're not sure what to do. They're not sure how the principles of, of love and compassion and mercy and justice may apply in a given case. And I think this is one of the strengths of Presbyterianism, reflecting the biblical principle of graded courts where lower courts are not left to themselves. where We're not independent. Right? There's, there's somewhere to go when a case is too difficult. Now, of course, the problem is that every human court can be wrong and every human court can be corrupted by sin. In fact, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, another part of our church's constitution, has a chapter on synods and councils. And it says that all synods and councils since the apostles' time, whether general or particular, may err and many have erred. Nevertheless, when we reflect on Moses' teaching here in Deuteronomy 17, one of the things that really is emphasized and stands out to me is how Moses stresses the requirement of obedience to the human authorities that God has put into place because this is how God rules. He uses means. God exercises his own perfect authority through imperfect and often deeply corrupt human authorities. You notice Moses doesn't provide an escape clause in this passage. He doesn't say you should obey the authorities unless you disagree with them. In fact, in verse 12, he says that the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. Think about what Peter says in the New Testament to Christians about civil authorities. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. There you have both you know, lo local and, and uh, empire-wide authority um, who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And he wraps it all up saying, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor 
the emperor. Now, we need to appreciate the fact that Peter was not someone who is unaware of how evil and corrupt human authorities can become when he told Christians to be subject to every human institution. I say that because when Peter wrote these words, it was very likely that Nero was the emperor at the time who burnt Christians alive and used them as tiki torches to light up his party. Right? So this, this is not someone who just doesn't get it. This is someone who would go on to die as a martyr. He wasn't ignorant of the injustices of human authority, and yet he still called Christians to be subject to human authorities for the Lord's sake. But now as, as we consider this passage here, Deuteronomy 17, this need for a higher court, we, we have to consider the case of Jesus himself. I, I am convinced that John, the apostle, wants us to read uh, his gospel in the light of Deuteronomy 17. In particular, in John chapter 11. And you're welcome to turn there with me. We're going to spend a few minutes in John 11, where we read about a decision that was made by the central council. Okay, get that? The highest court, the central council, a decision made in Jerusalem. This is the higher court, spoken of in Deuteronomy 17. And after the news of how Jesus had just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees, called an emergency meeting. They thought this was a DEFCON 1 situation. So we read in John 11, verse 47. Again, this is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And boy, it's caused a ruckus. So verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. See, they're concerned. They didn't want to lose what they had. They didn't want to lose their social standing. They didn't want to lose their place. This council, though, we need to appreciate, was none other than the Jewish, Jewish Sanhedrin. Okay? So this meeting takes place at the highest possible Level. This is the authoritative power that Moses insists must be obeyed according to Deuteronomy 17. Talking here, if you like, about the equivalent of the Supreme Court. And this was the final decision-making body of the people who are responding to what they saw as a real existential threat to the survival of their nation. Right? So the stakes are high here. The council feared that if they didn't do something about this man, Jesus, who was performing these signs and miracles, that his popularity would swell to the point that there would be this uprising and people would try to set Jesus up as king and then that would be game over, right? The Roman Empire, Caesar and all of his, his power, the full might of the Roman Empire would come crashing down on the city of Jerusalem, and it would be lights out, as indeed would happen later on in A.D. 70. And so the authorities called this emergency meeting to figure out, what are we going to do about this? They, they, they were terrified, and, and not without 
cause. And as they discussed how to respond to this man, in the midst of the discussion, a voice uh, was heard. Voice spoke up. And it was the voice of the high priest. He got straight to the point and offered the clearest, most simple solution to this big problem. John 11, verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now remember what Deuteronomy says. The priest who is in office at that time. Okay, so Caiaphas said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What's the solution? Simple. Kill him. Get rid of him, and all your problems go away. That, that's, that's what Caiaphas is saying. If we kill him, they won't kill us. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but don't be naive. It's better that this one man should die for the whole nation than that everyone be destroyed. Kill him and this problem will vanish. Caiaphas is what we would call a pragmatist. Do what works. He didn't have time to be worried about principles of justice. All he cared about were the practical consequences of the foreseeable future. And there's undeniably, there's an undeniably powerful a uh, persuasive force at work uh, there. And with that line of thinking, especially, especially when we feel threatened, it is very easy. It is very easy to sacrifice things. Even Jesus on the altar of whatever works. But brothers and sisters, we need to always remember that we are not pragmatists. We uh, as Christians, we worship the God who wins by dying. That, there's, there's nothing practical about that except for the fact that this is also the God who raises the dead. You see, the problem with pragmatism, rather ironically, is that it doesn't work. Pragmatism doesn't work. It doesn't work because it fails to take God's sovereignty seriously. It fails to see beyond the horizon of death to the power and the purposes of God who raises the dead. Fails to see what the book of Ecclesiastes calls the end of the matter. Here's the end of the matter according to Ecclesiastes. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now here's one of the things we need to appreciate, that even though Caiaphas's intentions were inexcusably evil and wicked, he spoke better than he knew. It was better for one man to die for the people, and God used Caiaphas, spoke through him, despite his incredible wickedness, he spoke through him as the high priest, just as the law of Moses said that he would. Jesus' death was not simply a human act of political calculation. It was a divine act that God had planned in advance. John makes this clear in this parenthetical 
or editorial comment in verses 51 and 52, he says, he, that's Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So you see, at one level, Jesus died because he upset the political and religious establishment. But at a much deeper and more profound level, his death was an act of divine justice which revealed the righteousness of God. And this helps us to see an even higher court at work. The final court of reference, the final court of appeal, the divine tribunal at work. As Paul says in Romans 3, which we read earlier, Jesus' death, we could say, is not only the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world, it was also the greatest revelation of the righteousness of God because it solved the most difficult problem that could ever be presented to us. How can a just and holy God forgive sin? How can he do it? How's he going to deal with our sin? How could we ever be reconciled to God? How can God forgive sin and idolatry and be just at the same time? How does he do that? Well, the answer is given to us at Calvary. It's given to us at the cross where the judge himself, the man appointed to judge the living and the dead, all peoples and all time, the judge himself takes the place of those who were guilty and condemned to die. And here we see the one true judge of all the world at work to make things right. So again, come back to those questions. Who is in charge? What is John telling us, we read in John 19, behold the man. How should authority be exercised? By the way of the cross. Where should authority be centralized and focused? Well, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son of God. Jesus the judge is alone fit to administer justice And only justice, justice, justice. He alone can render justice and in himself even bear divine justice. And so go back to the case of God's people caught in idolatry. And if you see yourself described in that account of on the one hand, yes, serving God. But on the other hand, um, I'm keeping my toes in in, uh, this water here. What do you do when the law says you are worthy of death? Where do you go? Where do you take your case? This passage, read in the light of all of Scripture, says take it to the highest court. (laughs) You take it to the top. You bring your case to the judge of all the earth who not only executes righteous judgment, but bears the full weight of judgment for his people. Friends, let us arise. Let us arise and go to Jesus, the judge, who is also the Savior of all who come to him. Because he alone 
is able to deal with the case that is too difficult for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, this passage, which once again we see leads us straight to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our judge is the redeemer of God's people. And we confess to you this morning our idolatry, our tendency to turn away from you and worship other things and bow down to them. Would you please forgive us for Jesus' sake? We come once again to him and pray that you would wash us clean. And we pray that you would conform us to his image. That more and more in our lives where we are in positions of authority, where we are called to render judgment, that we would render judgments that reflect his mind and his heart. That we would have a heart for the poor and needy because we ourselves know that we are poor and needy sinners redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.